everyone, and welcome back to the Pro Bono Pod. This is the second episode in our series on behalf of the KCL Pro Bono Society, one of the largest student-run pro bono organizations in the United Kingdom. Our podcast aims to discuss and raise awareness about a range of issues, from gender inequality to the death penalty with a panel of lawyers, academics, charities, NGOs, activists, and more. I'm Tin Hei, the media officer at KSO Pro Bono Society, and I'm joined by Manali, our communications officer. Hi everyone, my name is Manali. I am this year's communications officer. I've been with the society for three years now, uh, volunteering in my first and second year and taking on a more active role today. I'm so excited to be joining you and thank you so much for tuning in. So in our last episode where we were joined with Emma, we were discussing climate justice and the role of environmental law within pro bono. Today, our focus will actually shift to the role of legal technology and how it impacts access to justice. In this year of unprecedented challenges for both the charity and legal sectors, pro bono legal aid has never been more important. The pandemic has forced many legal services to shift their work online, and the increased demand for innovation facilitated the development of legal technology. And the reason why I'm joining you today is because I worked over the summer in a legal tech company, and it opened up my eyes about how legal tech has such a big potential in the charitable space. And on the other hand, pro bono and corporate social responsibility efforts have been on a rapid expansion amongst law firms and corporations. Even among their paying work, corporations are increasingly concerned with addressing social justice issues, aware as they are that respecting human rights has immense reputational benefit and makes perfect business sense. So what does this new technology mean for pro bono work and the charitable space? What is the relationship between pro bono and technology in the access of justice field? In what ways are these two sectors connected? We will be exploring all of these questions today. We are so fortunate to welcome our guest to the studio. Today, we are joined by Ileana Futkova, product manager at The Gatics, and Emma Rehal-Wald, who is currently a lecturer at London South Bank University. Emma, why don't you start off by introducing yourself and your background? Well, thank you very much, and what a pleasure it is to be here. Um, so I'm Emma Rehal-Wild. I am a law lecturer at London South Bank University, but I only joined the academic world very recently, so back in 2020, when the world was a very different place at the very start <laughs> of 2020. Before that, I, for quite a few years, 13, I think it was at last count, was a very active in the corporate social responsibility and pro bono sector within the legal sector. So I worked initially for Lovells and then Hogan Lovells in their pro bono and corporate social responsibility team. And then more recently, an American firm called Debevoise and Plimpton as their London-based pro bono manager. And also, I'm a trustee at LawWorks. Thank you, Emma. And now we'll turn to Ileana to hear about her background. Hi, everyone. First of all, thank you so much for having me here today. I'm Ileana, and I'm a product manager at Legatics. And Legatics is a legal tech company, and I've been with Legatics for two and a half years. It's been a really exciting journey, both in terms of my career development, but also seeing the company scale over the past couple of years. Thank you so much. I know that a lot of our listeners are very keen to hear from our speakers as they come from a range of backgrounds and they want to know more about career opportunities. So thank you again for joining us. Yeah, thank you guys. So as mentioned, today we'll be talking about legal tech. As most of you already know, legal technology is the use of technology and software to provide and aid legal services. From e-discovery softwares to contract management platforms, numerous reputable firms across the world have been adopting legal tech to improve overall efficiency 
and legal tech companies are on the rise to disrupt the traditionally conservative legal market. So how we'll go about the discussion today is that we'll start off by some questions for both of our speakers and then open the discussion to the floor. So, Eliana, let's start with you. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you ended up at Legatex? I know you studied law at university. Yeah, sure. That's a really interesting question. In terms of my background, after spending four years at university, I was really keen to get more experience and I tried to apply to as many opportunities as possible within different industries. And in terms of legal tech, I did a really interesting internship at CrowdJustice and also at Juro. And I reached out to the founders of Legatix and I was really bought in by their vision. So initially I started off as an intern and then I decided to stay and I've been at the company for two and a half, three years now. Amazing. For those of our listeners that don't know much about what Legatix does, do you mind explaining the type of technology that you use and what services you offer? Sure. So Legatix is a transaction management platform. And our main use cases within corporate, such as M&A deals, or within banking and finance, such as project finance, asset finance. So our company was set up by Anthony, who's a CEO, and shortly after he was joined by Daniel, who's a CCO. And they're both former lawyers and saw an opportunity to solve various pain points to do with the traditional way of running deals, which are extremely manual and they take up a lot of lawyers' time. So some of our customers right now include Alan Overy, HSF, and so on. So hopefully that gives you a bit of an insight into what we do and who we are. Yeah, definitely. And another question that I had was that the technology that a legal tech company develops, the machine learning technology, a software managing platform, it is a transferable tool that has the potential of being shaped and adapted to address different needs. So what potential do you think, as somebody who is working in the legal product field, legal tech has or technology has in the charitable space in the future? I think there's a lot of potential because whether you're a corporate lawyer, such as our customers, or whether you are a lawyer within the charitable space, the fundamental problems are quite similar in terms of the day-to-day. So, for example, there's a lot of inefficiencies, which I've seen myself as well. And what legal tech does is trying to cut through the noise and simplify those processes and help lawyers work more efficiently. So that, first of all, gives them more time to do more pro bono work, for example, or to go home at a decent time. And it also makes a financial sense from the perspective of the partnership or the company. Yeah, so that is our introduction from Eliana. I'm going to pass it on to Manali to ask about Emma. Yes, (laughs) thank you so much for that, Eliana. And now moving on to Emma, I'd like to start off by kind of asking you about your background and kind of where you found yourself today, how you got there. Yeah, great. So I think, funnily enough, I think in a room full of law students or law graduates, I'm the only person that doesn't have a law degree. (laughs) So I did a politics and sociology degree, then I did the conversion course and qualified as a solicitor quite a long time ago now. And on qualification, realised that maybe being a practising solicitor wasn't quite what I wanted. I wanted to work in kind of more Mm -hmm. bigger picture stuff. So I joined Lovells, as it was then, to work in their pro bono team and worked on very small pro bono projects right through to truly global ones, matching up legal expertise with need in the community. And then I moved on to Debevoise and Plimpton, where I managed their UK operations when it came to pro bono. Again, from quite small projects through to really, really international global ones. And then I decided that I wanted to move into academia. So I 
left Deborah and Plimpton to join academia. And I'm now a law lecturer. I actually teach on a second year module, compulsory module called Working in the Law, which is all about skilling students up to be able to, if they want to, pursue a career in the law. And the employability lead as well for the law division. So I help students determine what it is that they want to do when they graduate. And I'm also, probably most importantly for the purposes of this discussion, I'm a supervising solicitor in the Legal Advice Clinic, which runs five days a week at London South Bank. And what's quite interesting and unusual about the Legal Advice Clinic at South Bank is that it now operates a hybrid system. So on two days of the week, it operates virtually, and I'm a supervisor in the virtual clinic, and the other three days of the week, it operates face-to-face, which is what it used to always be. So, you know, in theory, we can... We can, and in practice, we can see far more people in different ways. That's brilliant. You know, so much experience there. And I think a lot of what you'll, you've said will resonate with a lot of our listeners who are either kind of in the process of maybe they haven't studied law and they're deciding they want to go into something law related or, you know, like us, we're little students, but still kind of trying to figure out the next step. So it's, it's really reassuring to hear how you can kind of move around and it can be very flexible. So that's great. And we'll talk a little bit more as well about the legal clinic and kind of this idea of moving more online and how that will access more people. So that's great. Um, So just kind of a few more questions based off your experience and kind of your thoughts. But essentially, as more routine uh, legal services become assumed by technology or even machine learning, so for example, you know, these legal clinics that can be now accessed online, what do you think this means for, you know, the role of a lawyer or the role of a solicitor? I think it's hugely exciting for the legal sector I'm sure that we'll discuss some of the real challenges and risks that technology pose. But I think for the purposes of this question, it is a real opportunity. And for me, it's going to be about lawyers knowing and understanding that they will need different skills and much more of a variety of skills to be able to engage fully with this new kind of technology landscape. There's, of course, the skills that come with using technology, like I mean, we all lived through two years of saying, you're on mute, you're on mute through (laughs) Zoom. There's the skills of being able to use technology, which is one thing. But more importantly for the legal sector is the skills that must come with being able to access a much more varied group of clients. So we may be used to only dealing with a specific type of client, but hopefully what technology will do is democratise access to those services. And with that democratisation, we'll see lawyers needing to adapt the way that they engage with clients to change. So you might see younger people accessing legal services, older people accessing legal services, people for whom English isn't their second, third, fourth or fifth or sixth language. Speaking with clients through a screen requires very, very different skills in terms of your showing levels of empathy, your active listening skills and showing clients that you can be trusted. And so until at the legal sector feels confident enough to do that, technology will just be one more barrier, unfortunately. But I see it as quite an exciting opportunity. Fantastic. I think so do we as well. From learning how to cope with online school and online learning to seeing how that will transfer to the workplace and then our legal sphere, I think it'll be a very interesting transition. So thank you. So Emma, you mentioned that you are a trustee for LawWorks. Could you start off by kind of telling us a little bit more about what LawWorks do and if they're up to any exciting initiatives recently? Absolutely. So LawWorks is the solicitor's pro bono group and its purpose is to match pro bono need with expert legal advice and also raise awareness of pro bono and provide a policy voice in this area. So Free Legal Answers, which is what you asked about, Manali, is an online platform that 
basically matches individuals that need initial legal advice with pro bono lawyers. And so it's based on a model from the United States, but LawWorks have been granted a license to launch a similar site here in England and Wales. And it's intended to provide support to people on low income who are not eligible for legal aid. And what they can do is they can ask a fairly discreet legal question or describe a legal problem and then receive one-off or initial legal advice. And so it's like a matching platform. So someone will plug their problem into the front end of the software and then a lawyer can then choose which sort of legal issues they wish to address at what time they wish to address them. You know, if they've got, if it's 10 o'clock at night, they can't sleep, so Mm -hmm. they decide that they want to (laughs) log in and and do some pro bono. Or maybe if they're on the other side of the planet, then they can log on to this platform and address these one-off kind of legal problems. So the current areas areas of law that it's covered are employment, family, consumer, and housing. And from my experience in the legal advice clinic, I know that those are the areas that are in absolute highest demand from members of the public. So how it works is that an individual might access a law centre or another charitable advice organisation, and then that organisation then refers them to the Free Legal Answers website. And the individual is given a password by the referring agency. And as I've said before, what this means is that there's this, you sort of get rid of these geographical and time barriers to providing legal advice because you can be anywhere at any time as a lawyer logging onto this platform. You can choose your area of specialism. You can choose an area of law that you've been trained to advise on. And then you can provide answers to those to those discrete questions, to those concrete legal problems. And I think that's going to be indicative of what we'll see in the future, where we will see, we won't see technology answering or dealing with people's legal questions itself, Mm -hmm. but we will see technology being used to match up need with the pro bono advice. Yeah, absolutely. I think this whole idea of kind of problem solving through the use of tech to absolve more legal issues is something that we'll continue to see. And, you know, having worked in education and, you know, seeing how the modules and curriculum develops, do you kind of see the role of tech being more influencing through for like your full law students and seeing that kind of combination between tech and law happening more often now? I absolutely do see that. So my colleague, Andy Younger, who is the head of the law division at Southbank, and a colleague from the computer science department, Lucia Atoyo, They together co-designed a new module for students called Law and Technology. And so what that sees is law students and computer science students coming together in one module to identify a legal issue and then using technology to address or help address that particular legal issue. And I'll give you an example. So the class is divided up into groups. And so last year, one group, one team worked with the Monitoring Group, which is an anti-racism charity in South, based in South London. And they were asked, this team was asked to design and build a prototype app that people could use to report incidents of racism. And that could also help provide out-of-office advice and referrals to local lawyers and community groups. An example from this year is a team working together to develop an app to report incidents of sexual violence on university campuses. Mm -hmm. 
So these teams identify a very specific legal need and they realise that there's a real current gap in, in addressing that legal need. And then they work together with the tech community, with computer scientists to address that need. So that this really is legal design Absolutely. in action, yeah. which is really exciting. I think to begin with, maybe law students and computer science students don't think that they'll work, <laughs> they'll be able to work together. But, you know, we've, we've seen from the work with the monitoring group that it can actually be a really, really worthwhile and rich experience for them that ends up with something very concrete at the end that, that can help the community. Absolutely. And I think it's so important to kind of see our disciplines and academia as interdisciplinary, because I think that's when we gain the most. Thank you so much, Emma. We will try and talk about what advantages legal tech has in facilitating the access to justice and empowering individuals and community to understand and use law. So what do you guys think about this? What role does legal technology have in increasing the access to justice? So I've already touched on this earlier, and I think that legal tech has a huge potential in driving costs down for law firms, and that cost can be then passed on to customers. So as you know, the dominant way of charging for legal services is per hour. And with and utilizing legal technology allows lawyers to be more confident with the work that they produce in a more timely fashion to a high level and then move towards working with fixed fees or capped fees and pass those savings to their clients. Another area which I've seen in my personal experience that legal tech has made a really big impact is in terms of client engagement. And I think that you can take that and apply it within access to justice problem as well. So for instance, we help lawyers to work more efficiently, but we also help clients to understand what's happening in a transaction. So we bring everyone together and we increase the transparency in a deal. So for example, the way that these deals are traditionally run is through email and through conference calls, which happen usually every week or every fortnight. And as soon as you update the client, that information is immediately outdated and they have to wait until the next call, or the next email exchange to actually understand what's happening and understand what's holding the deal, who's responsible for what and so on. And with that platform, we allow clients as well as other parties to log in at every time and see in real time what the status of the transaction is and actually understand that. And we do this through visualizing a lot of the, the processes within the transaction. So I think taking that and applying it to access to justice, there's a lot of ways to level with customers and help them and basically make legal services more accessible. Legal tech is not the answer to all of the problems within this space. Access to justice is far more nuanced, and we need to think about people who can't necessarily access technology or who are not comfortable with it. For example, they don't trust it. And I think that we need to find a way to bridge that gap. So in terms of my experience at Legatix, whilst we are an online platform, mm -hmm. as product managers, we also think about the offline experiences for customers. So let's say someone can access the platform. 
there is a way for lawyers to download the checklists or the work and then print that and give it to the customer, whether that's to update them on the status of the transaction or whether that's to sign an actual document. So I think it's really important to bear that in mind and try to first build products that are inclusive and second, think about how those products will be implemented. Amazing. But actually, to your point, Ileana, about it being more nuanced, if you don't even know you have a legal problem, then presenting someone with a laptop and a webcam makes them no more empowered or knowledgeable or it does not advantage them in any way. And so technology really can't be used as a kind of band-aid, which which I completely agree with you Absolutely. about. Yeah. It can only support a system that's already strong and functioning. Yeah. And so back to my point about a client who doesn't even know they have a legal problem. In the UK, 11 million adults lack basic digital skills and 5.3 adults are actually non-internet users. Users of legal aid services centers are often susceptible to digital exclusion due to a lack of financial means, a lack of stable housing, or a lack of understanding. Groups that are likely to suffer from digital exclusion include older people, people with disabilities, people who are financially disadvantaged, and these are the groups that are also likely to need and access free legal advice. So before we start moving on to implementing and broadening the reach of legal technology, we first have to educate everybody about how to access them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think even through the impacts of COVID, you know, we're looking at students who are trying to study without a stable internet connection. We know that digital poverty is a thing and it's something that isn't going to go away anytime soon. So from our standing, we worry that will legal tech actually deepen this digital divide, which has already become an issue? And, you know, what does that mean for vulnerable groups? I don't know if either of you kind of have any thoughts on that. So I joined Southbank during lockdown. Mm -hmm. So I never knew what their normal legal mm -hmm. advice clinic was like pre-pandemic. So I've spoken to colleagues about it. And it's a face-to-face drop-in clinic. And so people would wait in a waiting area uh, to be seen by the student advisors. And they might often see people who were facing eviction that week, maybe even that day. So these were people that immediate, urgent need for legal support. When it moved online, we definitely saw a marked change in our client demographic. These were people who were relatively tech savvy, not all, but relatively tech savvy, certainly had access to at least a phone and were able to engage with us over Microsoft Teams, which is the software that our virtual clinic uses. And so it was fantastic that we were able to maintain the virtual clinic throughout the pandemic because we helped lots and lots of clients. But it is interesting how the client makeup was different. Mm. And so that's to your point, Manali, about whether we are, whether technology runs the risk of deepening this digital divide if we don't bring everyone along with us. Yeah. You know, Tenha and I, we're also student advisors for our own university legal clinic. And we've kind of seen this idea of we're talking to clients, you know, via Teams or via Zoom. And we've had like kind of parents have their child there. So before they couldn't pay for the kind of childcare service, but instead, because it is now online, they can just kind of have their child in the background. So in ways, it makes their lives easier being online. But then, of course, there are still people we are kind of excluding and we just can't see them. So I think it is, you know, an interesting discussion that needs to be had about legal tech. And it's something that's, that's very much apparent. 
And I know in the United States, there was an abundance of housing issues when it came to the pandemic. And a lot of people were facing imminent evictions because the government hasn't implemented policies for a safety net. So when they were suffering in that condition, a lot of people didn't know that they had access to legal aid. They didn't know that they have access to legal technology platforms that can help them throughout the toughest times. So I think this, again, plays to the fact that while legal tech is efficient in doing a lot of the benefits that it aims to do, it can exclude some vulnerable groups from solving legal problems as well. So, yeah, as we move on to discuss the future of legal technology, I believe that there is a lot of scope for development currently. So talking about opening up access to justice through technology, I think it's also really important to think about the impact that that technology has on the quality of the justice dispensed. And this is something that we haven't really touched on yet. But I think it's really interesting because if you increase access to justice, then it's likely that there will be more justice dispensed. And that's the next step, I think, that will be really interesting to explore in this area. So, Ileana, working at Legatics, can I ask what a typical day as a product manager looks like for you? So, as a product manager at Legatics, my role is to understand the pain points of our users, and that will be lawyers as well as their clients, and work with them to find solutions that will give them as much value as possible. So typically I would talk to lawyers, I'll talk to our customers, and we've been very fortunate for them to be really engaged because as you know, lawyers are really, really busy. And then I would work with our design and engineering teams to implement those solutions. We'll test them and it's basically an iterative process. So that's constantly ongoing. And finally, we'll also work with the business teams and empower them to help implement that technology within the law firms, which is important because it's not just about building the right solutions, but actually helping the organization to implement that as well. So it's really a two-step process. Fantastic. How did you find COVID impacted legal tech and your day-to-day work? That's a really interesting question, actually. So... Initially, things were a bit quiet. I think lawyers were adjusting to working from home. But then we really saw an increase in adoption of legal tech. And I think that's not just to do with legatics, but more generally within the industry. And I think the reason for that was because you didn't have the big printers available and technology that you would essentially force to run deals in a different way from home. So we had a lot of demand actually during COVID to build an integration with a new signature tool called DocuSign. So you may have heard Mm -hmm. of it. And we had to do that really quickly. So I think for, for us, seen by law firms, essential technology, COVID really helped to implement our solution across the organization and collaborate across jurisdictions as well. But I imagine it was quite different for Access to Justice. Emma, what are your thoughts on that? Well, there's two things that I thought sort of sprung out about how technology... I mean, the legal sector, we've, we've pinpointed this, haven't we? We've already mentioned this. The legal sector is famously not particularly good at <laughs> embracing quick change. Yeah. But two things that I want to point out about the pandemic is the execution of wills, which, you know, for any of you that have studied wills and probate, you know, if you're signing, if you're executing a will, it has to be done in person. And of course, that wasn't possible in COVID. And so 
the rules changed and allowed for people to execute wills remotely. That doesn't sound like a big deal, but that's a huge deal for, first of all, for the families involved who are going through a difficult time. But also that very tiny shift of the dial in terms of allowing for this to happen is just sets the tone for it becoming a more an environment that where technology might be a little easier to adopt in the future. And the second thing I want to mention is the online courts. So the family hearings continued during COVID and I have not actually been involved in any online hearings or remote hearings at all. So I've just had to read about them. But the feedback seems to be very positive about family hearings that were conducted online. It saved travel costs, saved stress. People who maybe would have really felt uncomfortable going to court for whatever reason, maybe they were vulnerable, maybe they just wouldn't like to be in a courtroom, felt much more comfortable in their home. The risk of witnesses not showing up because, for whatever reason, was minimised. And so actually, the feedback seems to be that the online family court process worked well. But one thing that was pointed out in an article that I read was that what it can never replicate is that golden moment before you go into a hearing when parties talk to one another and negotiate, are often able to negotiate before they go before the judge. And so matters can be dealt with between the parties. At the moment, you can't replicate that in an online hearing. But whether that's a gap for technology going forward to fill where you have a separate space, you know, like a a team's breakout room where you can facilitate that is a different matter. But I really like the idea that this was, by and large, a positive outcome for technology in lockdown. I know there's been some talk about where pro bono platforms grow to be adopted as an alternative legal aid and publicly funded advice services. So how do you think the disadvantages or advantages this might play into the already decreasing funding cuts in legal aid, where we switch from the original legal aid service, in-person legal aid service, to online legal tech pro bono services? So, I mean, it's the age-old adage of all pro bono practitioners and pro bono lawyers, which is that pro bono is an adjunct to, not a replacement for a fully funded legal aid system. And simply replacing true access to justice with technology is not going to solve any of the issues that we're already seeing and have been seeing, especially post-LASPO in the, the legal aid cuts that we saw in 2013. And so any suggestion that simply being able to insert bits of technology into a system that is very, very precarious, the legal aid sector is incredibly precarious at the moment, it simply is not, it's not a solution. It will certainly help but legal aid solicitors have to exist and have to be paid exactly. and have, yeah. to have, <laughs> yeah. have to be working. They have to be funded in order to use that technology. So one of the things about the £1 billion investment into the online court, this was made in response to or as a result of the legal aid cuts. There was this suggestion that the Ministry of Justice could deal with the problems that, that LASBO brought up by rolling out sort of technological solutions. But also it enabled them to make huge amounts of job cuts in the court system. And so I think we need to be quite careful about what technology might be masking. Is it an excuse to cut more to the bone than has already been cut? And so to your point about access to justice and technology, they absolutely go hand in hand. But technology is not a sticking plaster to Mm -hmm. fix a broken system. 
And it certainly should not be used as a Trojan horse to effect more cuts and more resource diminishment. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think, you know, all the things we've been discussing today, it will really resonate with our listeners in terms of trying to think of solutions or trying to maybe like later go into jobs where they're, they're answering these questions. And this role of a lawyer or this role of, you know, a tech worker, it's very much going to shift. And I think it's quite important to bear in mind that a lot of the solutions that we need for these problems, they are jobs that don't exist yet. But a lot of us might find ourselves within these fields. And I think that kind of leads me on to, to ask you both kind of any careers advice or, you know, what you would tell yourself if you're a little bit younger, what what you'd recommend in terms of finding yourself in the place you are now, you know, from a law background, from a non-law background, what advice would you essentially give? I think the key point, maybe for yourself, it's not necessarily the company that you work at or the role that you work at that helps you achieve things as an individual and develop, but it's very much the people. And if you can find yourself a good manager or if you can find yourself a team who's really willing to invest in you and you're really willing to learn from them, then I think that's really crucial early on, especially at your career, but throughout as well. And seeking out that mentorship, whether it's within your company or outside of your company. And I do that within my work life a lot Mm -hmm. as well. We have a big product team and we are scaling, but I'm always reaching out to other product managers outside of the company and asking them for their take on things as well. No, that's great. And I think I really hope our listeners resonate with, you know, trying new things and just reaching out and going for it, even if you might, you know, not be too sure yet. But that's great. Emma, what about you? What advice would you give? I 100% support everything that Ileana's just said. I mean, I'm going to give a couple of pieces of advice, and some of them might contradict each other, but <laughs> make it work with your lifestyle. Because the first one is say yes to everything within reason. So if you're offered the chance to do X, do it, or at least read about it to, to make sure that if you do turn it down, it's for the right reasons. So hopefully you're saying you're taking advantage of as many opportunities as possible. But my second piece of advice is have a really good, fun social life as well. Build up your friendships at university. Look out for each other, care for each other and do fun things. If you like going to the theatre, go to the theatre, carve out time in your busy schedule to go to the theatre, play netball, do sport, go to the cinema. If you can make those two things work together, you will have a really, really, really good chance of landing the sort of job, whatever that looks like, that you want, because you'll be much more capable of understanding what you enjoy and what you're good at, which is another point that Ileana made, which is have a critical think about what you enjoy doing. Did you have a good week last week? Why? What was the actual bits of your week that made you smile and made you think that you're having a good week? Was it when you were with your friends? Was it when you were with other people? In which case the chances are you develop energy by bouncing off other people. Or was it when you had a quiet moment to yourself after you'd finished a shift at work and you managed to catch up on reading a book? In which case, you know, maybe that's the sort of personality that you have where you need a little bit more downtime. You need to kind of recharge your batteries on your own. Neither is right for a lawyer. One of the beautiful things about the legal sector is that it attracts pretty much and every different personality type has its place. But that's the case in every sector, I'm sure. So know yourself, enjoy yourself, and take care of yourself, I think are my three top bits of advice. No, I love that. (laughs) Yeah, just to add on that, I totally agree. I think 
going into the legal sector, I thought I should do this because that's that's what lawyers are like. It's actually not the case. Different practice areas require different skills and different personalities. So just try to find out what works for you and what you can add to that. This is just extremely timely and applicable advice to those of us who are maybe applying for a VAC scheme, applying for a training contract in the middle and the start of a career and a bit lost because they don't want to go into the conventional legal space, but feels like they need to because that's what it typically is about. But to our listeners, I hope that this advice helps. Stay true to yourselves. And I think Emma has something else to tell you. Do pro bono. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, I'm studying for my doctorate at the moment and oh, I'm wow. particularly amazing. I'm looking particularly at clinical le- legal education and what sort of skills students develop that do clinical legal education, why students choose to take part in clinic. And in my opinion, and this is backed up by lots of research, <laughs> that sort of experiential learning develops every single bit of skill and technique that you will need to practice in any area of law that you can foresee and the areas of law that haven't even been developed yet because they don't exist yet. So do pro bono. Did you feel like there was a lack of technical knowledge that you had to grapple with when you first entered the legal tech space or was it something that was easy to learn? I know a lot of students were thinking about whether or not they need to know how to code, whether or not they need to know what machine learning is in order to join a legal tech company. I think that's a really good question. I think it's really intimidating going into something new, especially if it's not a straightforward path. And I can really relate to that. I think you don't necessarily need any technical skills. It really depends on the role that you're going to have at the company. I think that at startups, at least, you tend to learn through doing. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's been amazing. I've really enjoyed it. Others need a bit more guidance. And then if that's the case, a startup may not necessarily be a great fit for you. And you may be more interested in a grad scheme Mm -hmm. where you'll get a bit more guidance and a bit more structure into your day to day. So I think it really depends on your personality and on what you enjoy, but you don't know that until you try it. So I would just apply, reach out to as many people as you can and see for yourself how you're finding it and how that fits within your career development. I wouldn't necessarily think about how you fit within a certain company or within you know, their solution, but think about how that company fits within your journey and your career and where you want to be. That's great. This calls for the end of our podcast. Helping those vulnerable is deeply connected to the development of society as a whole. Not only does legal technology help bring resources to the most vulnerable and overcome international barriers, pro bono innovation can drive a law firm's business value. The legal tech market is on the rise, and this movement will inevitably impact the law firm, the corporation, and the everyday client. As mentioned, legal tech has scope to massively advantage society, but it also has its limitations too. And we hope that this discussion has made you consider how overlapped law and tech is and has the potential to be, as well as its implications for the future. So today we've talked about legal tech, we've talked about the access to justice, digital poverty, and, you know, the future of legal clinics and all of that is really exciting stuff, as well as, you know, even getting some advice for our listeners as well. So thank you so much to both of our speakers. Thank you, Emma, and thank you, Ileana, for joining us on our second episode of the Pro Bono Pod. 
We also like to thank the rest of the committee for working hard behind the scenes and to the studio for making this happen. We hope to see you guys next time and tune in next month where we will have a thought-provoking discussion on the role of the Amicus Project and the death penalty as well as legal issues in the States. Thank you so much. <laughs>